0: we have been covering the book of Daniel. We've been going chapter by chapter, passage by passage. We are an Old Testament fellowship group, and we have, in the providence of God, been going through the book of Daniel, and we are getting more and more ready to continue our journey on in this book. And in the Lord's providence, uh, we are not only in the book of Daniel and in Daniel 7, but the Lord allowed us last week in the main service to... Think more on this chapter and to think more on the context because I preached on Daniel chapter 7. And so it is quite providential because this is the continuation of last week. We are continuing and hopefully finishing Daniel 7 verses 15 through 28, the remainder of the chapter. But in any case, it is worth reminding ourselves since Daniel 7 does detail the moment that we have been waiting for Now That vision is central to the book, it is central to Daniel, and it unveils in dramatic and glorious form the climax and the victory of the sovereignty of God. That in the end, every nation and tribe and tongue will give glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ and that though on earth there seems to be this entrenched and detailed and protracted nature of human history, all of that moves. And all of that is designed by God to move to a moment where earth will give way to heaven. And heaven will answer the question that has been posed throughout all human history, who is the final Adam? And the answer to that question is singularly one, one and only one, because he is the only one worthy, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the centrifugal moment designed by God for his son before the foundation of the world. And Daniel is the one whom beheld that flow and that purpose in Daniel 7. It is central to Daniel. It is central to his book. But that is because it is central in the plan of God. And we noted that that moment is so powerful and so compelling that it reverberates... Throughout redemptive history, Daniel saw the Lord seated on the throne. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne. They saw the same thing. We noted that Ezekiel saw Yahweh on a throne with wheels within a wheel. Daniel sees a throne with a wheel within a wheel. They saw the same thing. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 recounting what he witnessed on the Damascus road, he recalls that he saw the glory of God. He saw one like a son of man. He saw one in the perfect image of God. That's exactly what Daniel says he saw. They saw the same thing. John in the book of Revelation, he recounts that he saw the Lord on the throne and that the Lord Jesus Christ came before him receiving the scroll, just like it talks about in Daniel chapter seven. They saw the same thing. Everyone is captured by this moment as God has revealed this moment. And we understand then this moment is so powerful. It is so central. It reverberates throughout redemptive history among God's own people. But there's another way to see it. There's another way to understand, and it's very vital for us to grasp this idea of Daniel 7 and how powerful and how compelling it is, and that is in the title, Son of Man. That is in the title, Son of Man. The phrase, Son of Man, is our Lord's most favorite Title for himself. It is used 81 times in the Gospel and Acts. He says it over and over and over and over again. And often when we hear the phrase Son of Man, we think of Christ's humility that indeed he did take on flesh. Indeed, he does have a human nature and there is a humility to that. And that is true, undoubtedly. But remember that in Daniel 7, the foundation of it is not about humility. The foundation of it is this is the final ruler of the entire universe. And so there is a lot in the Gospels that talk about Jesus in such a light with the term Son of Man. For example, then you will know that the Lord of the Sabbath is the Son of Man. He is the one who rules over the Sabbath. He is the one that rules over creation and the creation week and the purpose of creation as expressed by the Sabbath. And that is what it means to be son of man. Likewise, so that you know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. That speaks of his divine authority his divine power that he is the final judge of the entire world as the final ruler of it that's what it means to be the son of man also in luke it says that the son of man will come on the clouds that's a direct quote from daniel chapter 7 And when you start to realize that this phrase, Son of Man, Jesus uses it not just to talk about how he's a humble guy, but that he is the ruler of the universe, he is the one that owns all creation, then a phrase like this really stands out. Remember what our Lord says? Even the Son of Man does not have a place to put his head. We might read that initially thinking, oh, well, that means he's so humble and he's a humble guy. He's humiliated in that way. He's lowly. And that's true. But it's actually meant to be read as a contrast. This is the ruler of the universe. He owns every single piece of property in this world. Why? Because he's the final Adam. He is the one whom any hotel has to give a room to. Why? Because he owns them all. He has the title deed to the entire world. Any place he wants is his. He can make places for himself in this world. He has that kind of dominion. And yet, in his first advent, he had no home. That tells you everything you need to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Son of Man, the Son of Man, this title, it is defines who jesus is it defines and describes his destiny and it's for this very reason and it's absolutely fascinating if you read in the epistles after the gospel and acts you read all those different epistles from paul and peter and james and john and jude and the like he is never called son of man in those epistles and people wonder why if it's his favorite title Maybe it should be your favorite title, Peter. Why aren't you using it? And there's a reason. There's a reason. It's because that title is reserved for what he will receive in the end. It is reserved not for what he has now. He has secured his throne. He has secured the end. But we are still waiting for the moment that everyone has been waiting for. And when that moment happens, then he will have that title. And it's for that very reason in the book of Revelation. Then the title reappears again. Then the title comes back. One like a son of man coming on the clouds. The one who is the son of man will rule over the entire earth. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13, Revelation fourteen fourteen. Those that is that moment that he fulfills what it means to be son of man. And so, how central is Daniel 7? It's not just central to Daniel. It's not just central to the saints. It's not just central to people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul, and John. It's central to knowing Jesus and to knowing who he is. Who is Jesus? He's not just a humble man. He's not just a friendly guy. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not even just our Savior, though that is absolutely true. He is the final ruler of this universe for whom everything has been made. All history flows to him. All destiny belongs to him. All honor and glory are his exclusive possession in the end. That is Jesus. And that is what we must remember. And that illustrates how pivotal Daniel 7 is. And so there are a lot of lessons to be learned from Daniel 7. You can learn, like we said, about the reality of Scripture and the reality of the sovereignty of God and the reality of the storyline and lessons about Christ. Amen and amen. But here's what God does for us because he is so wise and such a good shepherd of us he emphasizes certain lessons that we need to learn from this passage, certain lessons that Daniel needed to understand from this passage. You might read Daniel 7, 1 through 14, and you just think, "Ah, what am I supposed to take away from this? If you take away nothing else, understand what God wants us to take away from this text, and that is found in verses 15 through 28, It really is two major points, two major deliberations from this dream of Daniel. And these two deliberations are simple, so simple, yet so important for us as believers, as the saints of all time to grasp. And that is this. The saints will have the victory and evil will be vanquished. Very simple. Very simple. You win and the bad guys lose. So simple, but we need to remember that, and that is what God wanted Daniel, if he took away nothing else, to learn from this dream, and that is what God wants us to take away from it, too. Remember, though we are talking about eschatology, things of the end, and people wonder, is this practical? Is this useful? God laid out how it's practical. You don't have to figure it out on your own. He told you, and he told me. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Let's understand then the first point, the victory of the saints. Verses 15 through 18, the victory of the saints. In verse 15, Daniel begins by saying, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my head kept Alarming me that the picture of His spirit, which is his internal disposition, it is his own attitude, it is his own feelings, it is his own motivations, it is his own thinking. It was distressed. The word distressed means that he was impoverished. Have you ever felt a gnawing pain inside of you? Have you ever felt a sensation where you almost wanted to get into the fetal position because you were in such agony? That's what Daniel's experiencing. And furthermore... The visions of my head kept alarming me. The word alarming has the notion of supernatural dread. What Daniel feels like is total doom. He feels as if all that awaits him is darkness. All that awaits him is judgment. All that awaits him is the worst kind of pessimistic situation. And you say, wait a minute. I thought we said this is the moment we are waiting for. This does not look like a guy who's waiting for that moment. Or if he is, it's a very weird way to do it. Why is he doing this? It's because, yes, this moment is glorious. Yes, it is about the triumph of God. Yes, it is that all history moves in that direction. But Daniel understands everything really well. He knows the end goal. He understands the end result. He also understands you have to get there. You have to get there. It isn't just that heaven plops down and says, we win. Yay. And that's it. There are these four beasts. There is the Antichrist. There is a tribulation period. That's not easy. And if you say, wait, are you, are you really sure about that kind of logic? Is that why Daniel is is? Think about convincing kids to go to the doctor's office. What do you say to them after? Oh, we'll get ice cream. It'll be good. You'll like it, you know, any flavor you want. What kid after you say that says, then let's go to the doctors every day? (laughs) They don't believe you. They just know, yeah, at the end, it's good, but there must be so much pain to get there, it's probably not worth it. That's what they're thinking. On a more biblical level, this is the illustration that Christ gives about eschatology, which is it's the birth pains, it's the birth pains. Every mother would say that their child is worth it, but that doesn't mean that there's no pain in the process to get there and that you don't dread the pain. And here is Daniel. He knows the ending. He's seen the beauty with his own eyes. But he says this, When I saw it, I, I felt the pain, and I can't, I can't keep that out of my head. I'm having trouble. Another way to understand this for Daniel, and this is important, is Daniel actually knew persecution. He experienced it his whole life. say, well, how bad for him did it get? Well, he was thrown to the lions. It's bad. People wanted his job all the time. People wanted to kill him. People wanted to make him compromise at every single point. People tried to throw his friends in the fire. He understood persecution. And when God is saying to him, Daniel... It's only going to get worse. That is not cause for someone to celebrate. It's normal to feel this way. And even for us, and even here in Sojourners, after I preached through Daniel 7, people came up to me and said, hey, are we going to be in Daniel? Like, where are we in Daniel 7? Because they understood. There are some parts of Daniel 7 you don't want to be in, selfishly speaking. And I understand that. And Daniel understood that even more acutely. And so he comes near, verse 16, to one of those standing by. eyewitness, an interpreting angel. And he began seeking out from him, as it says in verse 16, the exact meaning of all of this. The word exact meaning is actually the word for certainty. And you say, wait, how does exact meaning relate to being certain, to relate to being sure? It is pretty simple to establish the connection. Think about any time you make a deal with someone. Think about any time someone makes a promise to you. Think of any time that someone makes a guarantee or says, this is what I'm going to do for you. You want to know what they exactly mean by that. Have you noticed ambiguity in those situations is not your friend. I'm going to get you a car. Does it work? It's a car. (laughs) I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I, I show up. On time, I'm going to show up. That's not helpful. You don't want that. You're negotiating a job. Do I come to work on Monday? You will have a job. That's not helpful. If you don't do these four things, you'll be fired. What are the four things? There are four of them. That's not helpful. We want details. We want to know the exact meaning. And when you understand exactly what's going to happen and exactly what the plan is and all the details, and there's no ambiguity, no subject for misinterpretation, no loopholes, then the exact meaning becomes certain. Then you're sure. Then you know how it's all going to take place. Then you know what's going down. Then you know what has been agreed upon. Then you know what will happen. When you have the exact meaning, you will have certainty. What Daniel needed to know is what is going to happen. And once I know what's going to happen, and I know it's going to happen exactly this way, I can have assurance. I can have resolution in all of this. And so he asked for the angel in the vision to give him some insight into the exact meaning and certainty of all these things, and so the angel said, overall, and then Daniel's going to ask this angel twice, actually, for this one on the overarching vision, as we're talking about here. And so that angel said to me and made me know the interpretation of these things, namely, the overarching message of the dream. And what the angel does in helping us to understand the overarching message of the dream is precisely that he gives us a contrast and says there will be great conflict. Daniel, I'm not going to placate you. I'm not going to say, it's okay, it's not as bad as it looks. No, it's it's exactly as bad as it looks. But you win. But you win. There is a great contrast about a great conflict that will take place, and that is what the angel helps Daniel to understand. And so in verse 17, we see a great conflict. We see a great struggle. The way that the angel talks about this, the way that the angel articulates this, it exactly expresses this conflict. Notice the opening words of verse 17. These great beasts, these great beasts, the angel brings out that whatever we're talking about, whatever this represents, it is as ferocious, It is as furious, it is as violent, and as overpowering as those animals are. That is what you will face. If you're thinking, is there going to be a conflict? Is there going to be a struggle? The angel confirmed every bit of it. It's like wrestling with a wild animal. It is like an animal trying to hunt you down. It is like an animal that is so vicious and so terrifying. There are these great beasts, and notice the angel says, which are four in number. By separating the word four from the great beast, the... Angel not only emphasizes, yeah, there were four of them because there are going to be four kingdoms and four kings by extension. And and so that is a real number and not a real progression in world history, but he emphasizes the value of four. There are four of them, Daniel, and that matters because the number four emphasizes completeness. The number four emphasizes fullness Three is already satisfactory. This is one more than that. Four, like the four corners of the earth. This is everywhere. Everywhere. In fact, Daniel 7 already even mentions that. It is four as in the complete and full number of history. And what the angel is emphasizing to Daniel is this. Yes, there are going to be four beasts that outline the flow of all history. But if you think... That it just means that in those time periods, with just those four, then you're going to have trouble. And in between the two, and or you could go somewhere else on the planet and avoid trouble, you're mistaken. This is what's going to happen in every place. This is what's going to happen for all time. And along the way, you're going to have these four bumpy points. It reminds me of uh, being on a certain flight, and the pilot, he's a funny guy. And he said, "You might have noticed that we're taking off in a storm, and I want to let you know that uh, there's going to be really two major points where things are going to get really, really tough." And I thought, "Oh well, if it's only two points, he warned us, and you know, maybe I'll just take a nap and sleep through it or something." He goes, "And every point will be just a little bit less than that." Have a great flight. We're glad you're on this airline, and that's how we took off. It was. <laughs> I thought it was, uh, the honesty was refreshing. So the, uh, (laughs) makes you more prayerful. So, what the angel emphasized to Daniel is, yes, there are four, and they will be terrible, and they will be powerful, but don't think that any point of history and any place in this world, you'll be able to escape it. Things will just get from bad to worse. You need to understand it. There will be violence. There will be danger over all the earth and for all time, particularly as punctuated by these four landmarks. These great beasts, which are four in number, he says, continuing on, are four in kings now why emphasize that there are four kings because you got four key leaders and when you're on a quest to find out who the true leader is that comes into play that is true but when you're talking about this great struggle what you have to understand is this if the leader is initiating the struggle there is no restraint humanly speaking on such evil It isn't as if, hey, the underling is the bad guy, and then his boss walks in and says, no, you can't do that, and he restrains him. When the king himself, when the ruler himself is dedicated to that kind of wickedness, there is, in a sense, so to speak, no restraint. This is the full might that people have. This is the full power that they could possess and that God allows them to possess Oh, they use all of that toward their evil ends. It's the full force available to them at this time. Sometimes we get so frustrated that the government does X, Y, and Z, and I understand why we might have moral outrage, and and we understand we should always grieve over sin, and and we we and I and I grasp that, and and sometimes we we are bewildered by what happens, and I, and I can grasp that too, but. But when we get mad that the government does exactly what the Bible says it does, you really can't get that mad. <laughs> it's just doing exactly what the Bible says. It doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it acceptable, but it is planned. And we cannot act as if it's out of control. And that is what God is reminding Daniel Daniel, I am not saying that everything's going to be lovely. I am saying that there will be violence and danger like you have experienced in your life. That's not going away. I am saying that you can't escape it, that you can't just pretend to live in a panacea, and you could try to avoid it by geography or avoid it by time. You can't do that. And I, you can't believe that the government is the thing that is going to save you from that. They're going to be sponsoring that. And that means it's going to be intense, and it's actually going to get worse and worse and worse. Notice verse 17. Who will arise? Who will arise? That language there not only shows the succession of one kingdom after another kingdom after another kingdom. True. But it's even more. They arise in the sense that each succession gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy. Men will grow from bad to worse. This is how things are going to happen. It, is, will be, it will be successive, and it will be intensifying. And all of this confirmed Daniel's worst fears, that that's exactly what God was saying in the vision. And the angel says, you got it. Good job. But we need to have perspective. And this is what the angel's reminding Daniel. You need to have perspective. If you are anticipating that this world will be a better place for you, and it will get better and better and better, you will be angry for no reason. Because you will be putting promises in God's mouth that he never made. It doesn't make it acceptable. It doesn't make it morally okay. It doesn't give anyone an excuse for their sin. What it does, though, for us as believers, is it reminds us you cannot get mad. You cannot think that God has lost control. You cannot think when everything is going exactly the way God said it is that somehow his sovereignty failed when it actually works. Daniel, there will be a struggle. There will be a struggle. Don't get frustrated. Have perspective. Don't be fearful. Why? One, because the God who ordained this then is still in control. But two, and I love this, I love this. Look at the last phrase. Where will they arise from? From the earth. All of these kings and all of their power and all of the power of the four hallmarks of history and everyone in between, all they come from is where? From the earth. They are bound to this planet. And you say, what does that mean? Yes, they come from the earth in the sense that they reign over the earth. True. But it's not just that they rule over the earth. They come From the earth, their power is derived from something here. Their power is derived not from heaven in this sense, but from that which is below. Their power is limited, not that goes from natural to supernatural and can challenge heaven. No, their power is from that which is below, that which is assigned by heaven, that which is dictated by the throne room of God, and they are from the earth. They are not above, they are below which means this, they are still yet finite and they are still yet contained by God. You might look at the news and you say, this is so terrible. This is so wicked. I understand it's going according to God's plan, but it still grieves me. Yes, but know this, they are still under God and therefore they will not win in the end. And that drives us to verse 18. These beasts are still from earth. They do not have the power you think they have. They do not have the effectiveness that you think they have, Daniel. They do not have the might and the dominion that you might be assigning them in your mind because they look so terrible. Here's what will happen because they are just from earth and that's it. Don't believe the hype The saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. Every word of verse 18 tells you about how the saints will have victory, how God's people will have triumph. You want to know what the triumph is? Look at the opening words of verse 18. But the saints, this is a triumph of holiness. The word saints, and this will be a very important word throughout this passage and particularly into the conclusion, so do not forget this word. The saints, they... The word means holy ones, holy ones. You want to understand what kind of triumph we will have in the end? It's a fundamental triumph of holiness. It's a fundamental triumph of purity. It's a fundamental triumph of righteousness. And that's important for us to know. Fundamentally, in our lives, sometimes we think that evil always wins and good loses. Not on that day. There will be a day when good wins. And it is what triumphs. And sometimes in our lives and in our hearts, in our sanctification, or sometimes the lack thereof, we are struggling and we wonder, will I ever be able to beat sin? And will I ever be able to overcome sin, Satan, and death? I know it was accomplished on the cross, but practically, will that ever happen? And here's what God declares, one day the saints will be the saints. One day, the saints will live up to their name. One day, you will be holy. And this victory, the reason it all works is because of the holiness of God and the holiness that he gives to his people. And that's what will change the world in the end. And along that very line, while we are talking about eschatology here, and we are talking about the end times, and it is our hope, and it is our aspiration, and it is the moment that we are waiting for, we can never forget this. The only ones who have this hope And the only ones who have this destiny are those who are bought by Christ. The ones who are made holy by the Son. And if we ever lose sight of the centrality and the foundationalness of the gospel, we've lost the point. We must have that. That is everything to us because you cannot be a saint unless you have the gospel. And the gospel here is anchored and the gospel here is grounding Everything that is taking place. There is only one who has victory. And fundamentally, it is a victory of holiness. And that can only be accomplished and is secured alone by the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in his death on the cross and his resurrection. But the saints, the saints of the highest one. Notice, it's not just a victory of holiness. I love this. This is a victory that overcomes. Why? Because they will receive the kingdom. They will receive the kingdom. You say, what does it mean to receive the kingdom? It means who owns it in the end? Who possesses it in the end? The ball might be tossed around in the air and various hands touch it, but whoever has possession of it in the end is the winner. And here's what God reminds us. There are many kingdoms, they come and go. There are many people who have authority and they come and go. But in the end, the way God works is that his people have what everybody else wants. And we have the total possession in the end. We win. We have overcome all. We are the ones who triumph. We are the ones who have what they strove to have but never could truly possess. We will have it in the end. And not only will we possess it, notice this, we will enjoy it. We will enjoy it. This is a victory of enjoyment. They will possess the kingdom forever. The idea of possession is... The idea of having something, holding it, experiencing it, and that's what we will have in the kingdom. There are so many passages about the kingdom, passages that remind us that it will be like Eden. It is the place where the lion and the lamb and the wolf and the bear and the viper and the baby, they all can get along. Zoos will be a thing of the past. There is no such thing as that. There is no need for that. There will be, death will be so curtailed that people will just have their head bowed on a staff and just be hanging out. And this is the best part. People often miss it in Zechariah. They're hanging out on the street. You know that's crazy normally, yes? What person in L.A. just says, let's go walk on the five? Why not? (laughs) No one does that. But in the millennial kingdom, you will. Because there will be total safety. Because there will be perfect security. Because there will be no danger. Because everything wrong will be made right. And you will fully engage in that. There will be a temple and there will be perfect worship across the world. Sometimes we are amazed at, and and pastors who come to Shepherd's Conference are particularly amazed that so many like-minded people could assemble in one place. What do you think it will be like when the entire globe is worshiping Christ at the same time? Every nation, tribe, and tongue in every continent. And as far as the eye can see, your eye will see those kinds of people all joining with you. And if you've ever wondered, am I the only one who believes this or am I crazy? At that moment, you know you're not crazy. You were right. And you weren't right because you were right in your head and you were so smart. It was because Christ made us right. And all our eyes are fixed on him. That's what you will have. And you will enjoy it. You will enjoy it. That's what it means that you will possess the kingdom. And you say, how long will I have that for? Forever. Now, you might say, then why does it say in the next phrase, for all ages to come? Because the word forever means for as long as the age goes. For as long as the age goes. So the loophole could be, well, you get it for this age, and then you lose it. Which would, I mean, it's still kind of God for, to give us for any time. But Do we lose it after the age is done? And that's why at the end of verse 18, it says what? For all ages to come. This will never end. There will be a millennial kingdom. It'll last a millennium. That's why it's called the millennial kingdom. (laughs) A thousand years. And after the thousand years is done, you might say, "Is that mean that the worship and the joy and the possession of the kingdom is over? No, it will continue, what, for all ages to come. It'll only get better because there will be a new heaven, a new earth. And the entire dedication and purpose of all that is to enjoy that victory that God has accomplished in all of his redemption. And that is what the saints will have. This is a victory of holiness. This is a victory that overcomes. This is a victory of joy. And this is a victory that never ends. But you can't miss this you might say yeah i look forward to having that yes i want that kind of resolution and yes i want to know that we will overcome that which is earthly for that which is heavenly amen and amen but don't just focus and truly don't focus at all on us why do we have such victory and the answer is this it's the one phrase i haven't covered yet but the saints of who the highest one. That's why we have what we have. That's what makes the main difference in all of this. The saints of the highest one. If you go back through the book of Daniel, here's what's absolutely fascinating. If you talk to Nebuchadnezzar, his title for God is the most high God. If you talk to Belshazzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, his title for God is Most high one. If you talk to the Persian ruler, his title for God is also what? Most high. And they think that's a great compliment to God. They think that's a great accolade to God because it's showing Yahweh is above all of our gods. Yahweh is superior to all of our gods. And the language is fine to express their adoration and obedience and respect and reverence for the one true God and the recognition of that therein but here's what the angel tells Daniel. Our God is not just the most high among many. He is the highest one, and there is no one but him. That is who our God is. Why do the saints have victory? Why is there a victory of holiness? Why is there a victory of joy? Why is there a victory of overcoming? And why does that victory never, never fade and never go away? Because we don't have a God who is one of many. We have a God who is one. He is the highest one. There is no one like Him. There is no one in His category. There is no one near Him. There is no one who can be compared to Him. And that is why He is not just the Most High God. He is the highest of highest of highest of ones. And there is no one who could ever be classified or ever extended in comparison with Him. That is why the saints win. Brothers and sisters, what we must remember is we don't fix our eyes just on the things of this world, and we do not equally fix our eyes on just having a gloating victory over this world. We fix our eyes on the highest one. We fix our eyes, we look to Christ. And here it is, because we are on his side, then he is the one who gives us the victory, and he is the one who gives us courage. Yes, yes, there will be great beasts in this world. And there will be four in number, major ones. And in between them, it will their ethos will characterize the entire age. But we have one who is greater than anything on this earth. He is the one most high, beyond most high, the highest one, with no one higher than him. It is exactly the language that we see in a mighty fortress is our God. Do you not remember these words? For still our ancient foe, does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. That's true. That's what we saw in verse 17. That's a fact. But notice what the rest of the mighty fortress song says. Did we in our own strength confine our striving would be losing? Were not the right man On our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And what? He must win the battle. That is what Daniel says. It isn't just he must win the battle. Daniel declares he will. He will win the battle When our hearts are disturbed by this world, we need to remember that God's plan has not been derailed. When our hearts see the great conflict and the great struggle of this universe, our hearts should not think that God has lost control. He has a plan. But where our hearts must go to is not just a plan and not just to sovereignty abstractly, but to the one who is sovereign, the highest one. We're not the right man on our side. Who is that man, you may ask? Christ Jesus, it is he. That's where we go. And in him, he is the anchor of our very soul. The saints will win, brothers and sisters. Look to Christ. Whenever you are facing whatever you are facing, look to Christ. In him, he will win the battle. And therefore, our battle will be won in the end. The saints will have the victory. Well, not only will the saints have victory, evil will be vanquished. Evil will be vanquished. And that's found in verses 19 through 28. And Daniel has another question. He not only has a question about the overarching nature of the dream, but he desired, as it says in verse 19, to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. Don't we all? We all want to know that. Except for us, in this modern era, our reasoning is much more selfish because it's the only one left. So we're just thinking, what is that one? The other ones are all past. We already got bypassed all of them. What's the final one? That's the one we're most concerned about because that's the only one that we intersect with. For Daniel wasn't so. He hadn't gone through beast two. Or three, or even part of four yet. But what he knew, unlike us, is that this beast was different from all others. It was different in the dream. He saw one beast, it was an animal, another beast, it was an animal. This thing is like a robot of unrighteousness. This is not good. And it was different. It had a different nature, reflecting that this beast was more terrible than the rest. And as the text says, look at verse 19, it wasn't just different from all others. It was extraordinarily fearsome. This is Daniel's worst nightmare. This is what strikes terror in the heart of Daniel. This is what makes him want to be in the fetal position. This is what causes him doom and dread What Daniel already knew, and even as he's describing this to the interpreting angel, he is giving a lot of information both to us and to the angel that reflects. He knows exactly what's going on. He understands the concepts that are here. And he knows this animal is different than the rest. It is extraordinarily fearsome because this animal is the culmination of all evil. Evil like you've never seen in your life. Evil that we have never seen in our lives. That's what he's already doing by expressing this. And you say, well, how does he know that this is the culmination of all evil, the embodiment of all human wickedness and power all in one? Notice notice the next phrase. He even gives us some additional information to show you that he understands how to read the imagery just fine. With its teeth of iron, we already knew that this Beast had iron teeth, which corresponds to the iron in Daniel chapter 2. But notice it also has what? Cause of bronze. Well, that corresponded with an earlier part of Daniel's vision and Nebuchadnezzar's vision, where Greece was represented by bronze. What is this showing? This kingdom is the combination and the culmination of all past kingdoms. It isn't its own separated kingdom that just exists in succession and parallel to the rest. This one is the combining, the assimilation, the culmination, the conglomeration of everything before. If you put it all in one, that is what this is. And it is, the kingdom itself is the culmination of evil and its actions are intense. That's why he emphasizes it devoured other nations, assimilating them into himself. It crushed them so that they could never rebel against him, and they trampled them down with the remainder with its feet. It had so much power. It was able to reassimilate and reconfigure past power structures into itself, prevent it from ever coming loose, and had the ability to rule with such cruelty and hate its, its reign was powerful as much as it was wicked. And it did that not just with some nations. Notice, what's the final phrase? The remainder with its feet. It did that in depth, even as it did it with breath. So this kingdom, he recognizes, this is the culmination of evil. And then he says, but there's actually a culmination on top of that. Notice the meaning of the 10 horns, verse 20, that were on its head. He recognizes that, as you look up and understand this nation, the nation itself is the embodiment of all political wickedness, all moral evil, all power of all history. It's, it's swallowed up all the nations and therefore taken all their power and funneled it to ten horns. Ten horns. Ten rulers that were on its head, having governing authority. And then he realizes this. And then there was this other horn, not part of the 10, not part of the 10, something separate. And it came up. And before them, three of the other horns fell. Though there will be a 10 horn conglomerate, a 10 horn confederacy, a 10 horn, 10 rulers that have to balance all the power of the world. They can't even contain it. And it's so concentrated on their own. One guy can destroy the entire balance of power one person could actually disrupt three major superpowers that are part of this one empire daniel understands that and before three of them fell and he says this horn as it says in verse 20 had eyes i speak to wisdom i speak to genius and intelligence and a mouth speaking great boasts and this mouth that speaks great boasts literally great things It is the mouth that gives off all the power and dominance of humanity. And that's why this horn is described at the end of verse 20 as, which was larger in appearance than its associates. Daniel's never said that before. In the vision, you had 10 horns on this animal. And this one small horn, the underdog, all of a sudden became the largest horn on the animal, overshadowing everything else. And what you have now is the climax of the climax of the climax of evil. The kingdom itself was climactically bad, assimilating all nations. Then you had ten horns ruling over that. They were kind of the culmination of all that power. They were the ones who tried to contain it all in and of themselves. And then it gets centralized to one horn, bigger than all the rest. This is the climax of the climax of the climax of evil. All human power, all human iniquity, all centralized into one. You have never seen something like that. You say, man, but we have wicked rulers. Nothing compared to this. We didn't even make the top four of these beasts. We don't even know what a wicked nation looks like compared to this. We don't even know what the ten rulers who would divide up such wickedness look like. And we have certainly no conception of someone who has that kind of power. So vile all power in him. And Daniel realizes this is the climactic one. And here's what gets even more scary. Verse 21, I kept looking, and that horn, the Antichrist, the one who is so wicked, the climax of all wickedness and power, what was he doing? He was waging war against the saints. The phrase waging war, it has the idea of close combat. Has the idea of close combat. Why? Because the Antichrist, he wants to get up close and personal with the saints. He wants to terrorize them. Have you noticed that kids are most scared not by a fear that's far away, but in their face that suddenly jumps out? This is how haunted houses work and all that kind of stuff. Shock moments. And they scream. The Antichrist engages in the most close warfare to strike the most terror in the saints. That's how he wants to do it. Likewise, the the verb implies that he just does it relentlessly. He never stops. And so he is haunting the saints, even as he is hunting the saints. And here's perhaps what concerns Daniel even more than that. Notice the last phrase of verse 21. And he was what? Overcoming them. You might think, wait, I thought, we would have the victory. I thought we would be resilient. I thought their power was of earth and were of heaven, and that means then we should have protection. What did the angel, what did Daniel himself acknowledge? Here's what I saw. We lose in this world. There will be a period of time where we lose, where we don't win. And the book of Revelation makes that clear, that the Antichrist will slaughter Many, many. There will be a great multitude, Jews and Gentiles, who perish, who are beheaded, who are persecuted, who are starved. That will take place. You can understand why Daniel is a little disturbed. This is a very dark moment, and it looks like evil wins. Now, as Daniel is recounting his dream to the angel, he has a very long question, and and he's reflecting on it to us to show that he actually understands what some of these concepts mean. Daniel isn't a pessimist. He isn't a guy who is the glass is half full of poison, and you drink half of it, and you're going to die. That's not Daniel in nature. He doesn't just see the terrible atrocities that are going to come, and he just stops there and says, That's why I'm so disturbed. The end. No, he gives you the full picture and he recognizes it. And there is going to be a decisive point of overcoming and victory. Notice verse 22. I kept looking until the ancient of days came. That is a definitive intervention. And there will be a decisive moment. Why? Because judgment was given. There will be a judicial verdict. There will be a decision. And judgment will be given in favor of who? The saints of the highest one. That's deliverance. That's deliverance. They will overcome. Heaven will intervene on earth, it will do so decisively. And notice the next part. And the season arrived. That's a new era. Things will be changed. When the saints will possess, that is enjoyment, they will possess what? The kingdom. That's a renewed world. That's a totally different system. Daniel knew. Daniel knew that, yes, things will go from bad to worse. And when it's at its worst point, it seems like there will be the climax of the climax of the climax of evil. And God will even allow that to overcome the saints and overcome and terrorize his people. He understood all of that, but he also understood this. God will stop that in the end in its tracks. Notice the contrast that happened in verse 22. It says that this judgment will be given in favor of the saints. Earlier, it says this, the nations will be judged. One will be judged to destruction. One will be judged with favor. Notice it says in verse 22, and the season arrived. That's when the c- saints win. There will be a season for the saints where we win. But in chapter 7, verse 12, it says there will be a season when the nations have no power. We will have all the power. They won't. There will be a definitive victory. And it says this in verse 3, the saints, the saints have favor. Who, were, who was the Antichrist fighting against? The what? The what? The saints, though he may overcome them, it's a temporary victory. In the end, the very saints, those alive or those who have perished, will overcome the Antichrist. That will be a definitive victory. And why? Because no Antichrist and no horn, and even a horn that is the climax of the climax of the climax of evil, great and large in its appearance and great in its boast and intellect, none of them can ever be as high as the ancient of days and the most high, the highest one. No one can overcome him, and therefore that one will be vanquished. So, Daniel, he's asking a question, and he already shows. He knows a lot. He knows that this is about the culmination of evil, he knows that this is about the combination of all human wickedness in one form. And he knows also that God will have the victory. What he wants to know, notice verse 19 again. He wants to know exactly what's going to happen. Did I get this interpretation right? Did I understand it? What are all the details? Give me the facts so that I know exactly what will happen. No loopholes, no details omitted, so that I can have certainty that what I'm thinking through is right. So here are the facts. Thus he said, verse 23. The angel says, you got it, Daniel. You nailed it. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. We know that as Rome, which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. It will do exactly what you said. For Daniel, this is future. For us, it's past. Now, here's what's fascinating. Verse 24, As for the ten horns out of this kingdom. Stop there. Did you catch out of this kingdom? That means the kingdom of Rome already existed. And from that kingdom, these 10 will spin off. This already shows you that this is not talking about something that happened simultaneous to Rome's inception, but rather a certain stage of Rome's history. As we will see it played out in God's plan and in history, that stage is eschatological. It hasn't happened yet. Rome has come. And out of that Rome will come forth 10 horns in the future, an eschatological revival of Rome, a Rome 2.0, so to speak. And here's what it says. Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different than the previous ones. Why? because he's the climax of the climax of the climax of evil, and he will make low three kings. And we said, oh, yeah, in the vision, he spoke all these bold things against God. What does that look like? Verse 25, he will speak words against the Most High. You want to know why he has these great boasts? Do you want to know why he has great power? He believes he's so powerful, he can outright defy God. And he not only, (laughs) notice this, He just talks about the most high as opposed to the highest one. He tries to demote God. And what else does he do? He doesn't just challenge God because he believes he has so much power. He wears down the saints. That's him waging war against the saints. But the terminology is different. And this is what makes it so much more chilling. He doesn't just try to kill the saints. What does he try to do? Wear them down. He wants to break them. He wants them to get to them to deny Christ. He wants to wear them out like a garment is just worn out and disintegrating so that their strength and resolve is gone. That's what gives him joy. And you want to know how powerful he will be? Look at verse 25, the rest. He will intend to make changes where? In the seasons. This one will be so powerful. He will say, I know where God is taking everything, I know where history is going we have enough power, I have enough power to change history, to change the direction of this world. That is what he will say. And in doing so, as he wants to create a new era of history, a new world, a new stage of, hist- of, of world history, notice he changes not only the seasons, he will make changes in what? Law. He will come up with an entirely new religion, with an entirely new moral system, with an entirely new moral set of standards based nothing on God, but all on who? Himself. That is how arrogant and how powerful he will be. And here's what it says. They will be given into his hand. Now, on the one hand, they will be given, yes? Someone gave them over, yeah? On the other hand, he has it he can do that. That's why the tribulation period is so terrible. And notice what the text says. It will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Let's do some math together, shall we? Time is one. Times is two. So one plus two is three. And half a time is half. So three plus one half is what? Three and a half. Good. Good. That is half the tribulation period, half of seven years. This is talking about what will happen in the latter half of the tribulation period. Now you say, "Are you sure it's going to be for three and a half years?" Yeah, this is where we really know who can do math. <laughs> What's three and a half year in months? Oh. <laughs> Turn with me to Revelation if you don't have a cred- uh, calculator with you. Revelation eleven. Verse 2. By the way, just think about it. Three full years times 12 is 36. Half a year is six months. Yes, so 36 plus 6 is what? 42. Very good. Revelation 11.2 says what? They will trample the holy city underfoot for what? 42 months. Now, let's see if you're really, 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 really good. Let's convert 42 months with an average of 30 days a month. Into days. You're like, what is that? Go to verse 3. <laughs> I will give authority to, to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for how many days? 1,260 days. You say, why did we say that? Why did we do that? Notice, is the Bible consistent? Yeah, it's so consistent, it can convert even days into months and months into years. No problems. The whole thing is consistent. They read it all the same way, and here is the encouragement, both in the book of Revelation and in Daniel. Yes, he will have power, but it's given by God, and it has a time limit. It's only what? Three and a half. It's not even a full seven. He doesn't get it because our God still reigns. And even in the worst moment, our God is still sovereign, it is just for a time, times and half a time. And so in verse 26, the court will sit for judgment at the end of that time, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. It will be over for him. And why did God allow all this to happen? He put all the power and all the authority and all the vileness and evilness in one kingdom and ultimately one man so that when he kills that guy and destroys that kingdom, what does it show? All evil has been what? Vanquished. It's gone. God did this in his wisdom to show definitively that it is over. It's no different than when you sweep, you know, all the dust together. Why do you do that? To put it in one pile so you can throw away easier. You don't do what I do and just, you know, just redistribute the, the dust all over the place. God, God combines it all to one place to show that he has dealt with it once and for all. But you know what? He didn't just do that. It'd be one thing if he just got rid of evil, right? That'd be wonderful. Here's what he does. He replaces it. Verse 27, then the reign, that's the kingdom. That's the word for kingdom. And the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people of the saints. Brothers and sisters, what will evil be replaced with? A new kingdom. You might have said, hey, we're sojourners. We are sojourners in every sense. And we, we don't have a home. You will then. You'll have a kingdom. And you might say, but, but and we never had any power. We were always the underdog. You will then you will have the dominion. And, and we never had greatness or prestige. We're always the ones belittled. We're always the ones ridiculed. We're always the ones trampled underfoot. But then, that day, you will have it. Not just of some kingdoms, not just of some places. Of what? Of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. And they will be given to who? The people of the saints. Why call them the people of the saints? You have to understand, there are all kinds of saints. You have Old Testament saints, do you not? You have saints from Israel, do you not? Do you have saints from the church, do you not? You have tribulation people who are saints, yes. But in the end, all of those different saints will be what? One people under one Messiah, under the Lord Jesus Christ. And all dominion comes from him. That's why all the dominions there will serve and obey him. And they will serve and obey him because all authority comes from him and comes what? To him. There is one people, one kingdom, one world, one Christ. That's it. And everything that has gone wrong in the world will not just be negated, it will be right. Can you imagine a world, not just where there's no wrong, but everything is supposed everything is the way it's supposed to be That is what God says in the end. And then evil is vanquished. Brothers and sisters, you might say, what do I do with this information? I understand the saints will have victory. It's very hard, but in the end, we overcome in Christ. Amen. And you might say, and I understand that this world, this is not my home, but there will be a time where all the glory and the reign and the majesty will all be resolved, and I will be home finally in the end. What do I do with this? Verse 28 Here's what the text says at this point, the matter of this revelation ended. God gave exactly what Daniel needed to know. He never stops talking until you get everything you need to know from him. And Daniel said, "My thoughts were greatly alarming me." You thought, "Man, I thought this was supposed to comfort you." Daniel's now going from alarmed to greatly alarmed because it confirmed everything. But you notice what he says, "But I kept the matter in my heart." Yes. This is still disturbing. Daniel knows I've got I might have to live through beast number two, three and four. I don't know how long this is going to last. This could affect children, my children's children, my people, my grandkids, my my friends, uh, grandkids or whoever. Yes, it could happen. That's why I'm alarmed. That's why the splendor of my face changed. But I still kept the matter where in my heart. I treasure this. I treasure this. Even as hard as it is, it's exactly what John says in the book of Revelation. Even so, what? Come, Lord Jesus, because we keep the matter in my heart. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. And you must remember it. We must be those who keep this matter in our heart all the more. Do you recall that Paul saw this very vision on the Damascus Road. Do you also recall that Paul's favorite title for believers in the church is not Christians, nor is it believers? What is his favorite title? To the saints. Why does he keep calling us saints? Why does he keep calling us by that title over any other title? Because in the vision on the Damascus Road, when he saw what was going on, and he saw the exalted Christ, and he saw the people of the Christ. Who are those people in Daniel 7? They are called what? The saints. And what did Christ say? Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, if he was a smart aleck, he would have said, but I'm not. I'm persecuting you know, the church. But what did he understand? The church is linked with Christ, and therefore the church are the people in that vision, and therefore the church are who? The saints. Brothers and sisters, let me put it this way. There are many saints in this vision. We are not the only ones, but the ones who have been given the reign, dominion, and greatness forever, we are included in that number. We are the saints. And Paul saw the church as part of that group, and he knew what they would inherit. And that's why he persevered all the time, ministering and going to the ends of the earth, because he knew that that is the destiny of God's people. He saw you, and he saw me, and people like you and me in that vision, and he knew what we would have in the end. Brothers and sisters, you treasure this moment in your heart. You are there. You are there if you know Christ. You are there if you are a saint. This is what we have in him, and therefore we make it a matter of the moment that we've all been waiting for. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, we thank you that this vision was not concealed, but revealed. And we thank you for the lessons that it reminds us that no matter how strong the enemy may be now, we will have victory in the end. And that in the end, It will not just be that evil goes away, but it will be replaced with the most glorious reality, one that we could never fathom or think. And we thank you that in your word, you have revealed that your servant, the Apostle Paul, saw the saints of the church there on that final day, at that moment that we've all been waiting for. And so, Lord, help us, like Daniel, to treasure this moment in our hearts and make it the moment we are, even now, waiting for. In your name we pray. Amen.